High on a mountainside near the asylum in the ghost town of Jerome, Arizona, you are listening to Jerry and Kathy Wilkes. expressed on the Jerry Will show are those of the people that make them and do not necessarily reflect those of Jerry Wills, the Jerry Will show, the affiliates or sponsors or channel U. Welcome again to another episode of the Jerry Wills Show. Got a hell of a great show for you all this evening. Um, we have a guest all the way from Australia. His name is Paul Anthony Wallace. He's written several books. He's going to tell us about those in just a moment and tell us about himself. Um, the way we came about finding uh, Paul was Kathy watching a YouTube video. And I'll make sure that we have this information uh, in the description um, when we post this online. It was mind-boggling. Uh, the information was staggering. To tell you the truth, it was some of the best I'd ever heard. And, you know, I've heard a lot. So to say that is really quite a statement. So... Um, we're going to have him with you here this evening, and we'll be able to find out more and dig deep into what he knows about all of these things. So without any delay whatsoever, let's bring our guest on. Let me introduce you to our next guest, Paul Anthony Wallace. Hello, Paul. How are you? G'day, Jerry. I'm great, thanks, and it's great to be with you today. Thank you very much. I really feel it's a privilege to have you on the show. Like I was saying at the intro, the information was absolutely staggering, and I'm so excited to find out more because I know that was just just a flake of information that we got compared to the vast amount of knowledge that you possess. So let's start off, though, by telling folks a little bit about who you are and then we'll go into how all this started for you. Well, people know me today for my work in paleo contact. And paleo contact is the theory that our ancestors in the deep past had contact with other civilizations, meaning extraterrestrial civilizations. And my route into this territory is probably the thing that surprises people most because my background is in 33 years of church based ministry. I was an archdeacon for the Anglican Church in Australia, which is one down from a bishop, kind of a troubleshooting role, and also worked in training pastors uh, in hermeneutics, that's the principles of interpreting ancient texts, and in the history of Christian thought. And it was really the things I learned in that area of my work, along with my work as a church doctor, that led me into more paranormal questions and extracurricular extra questions about the ancient texts because all the tools that I trained my pastors in about finding the sources of our texts and understanding the form of our texts were opening up anomalies in the texts, anomalies in the stories that we've told. And I began to realize there is another layer to many of the familiar stories of the Bible that have nothing to do with God, but have everything to do with paleo contact. So it was really just a matter of time for me to be doing that work of theological education long enough 
to uh, spot these portals into another world that are there all through the biblical text. So that was my way in. Wow. Very interesting. Um, <clears throat> what does it mean to be a church doctor? Well, a church doctor is um, a title I use to describe different kinds of work that goes into a community of faith that's having problems uh, or that is in a transition or that um, have self-destructive patterns that are repeating or there's just some reason why the denomination is hesitating before they put another pastor in and the church doctor goes in kind of as a fixer you have to identify what's been going wrong why has it been happening how do we address that before another pastor comes in and, and the whole story repeats again so it's a really interesting uh, area of ministry Sometimes it's at the more positive end of the spectrum where you're wanting to get something started, but a lot of the time it's going into a community where there's something going on that is just uh, making it very hard for the people, might be making them physically sick, there might be a, a lot of um, uh, emotional damage or anomalous volumes of mental ill health either in the people or in the pastors. And so I've gone into churches where, you know, over decades, what happens to the pastor is the same. He'll go in healthy, and then he'll have to be invalided out because he's had a breakdown. So why does that keep happening? And so the church doctor has to go in, work out what's the problem, and fix it in quite a short um, time frame. So it's very intense work, and it forces a pastor to engage with all the layers of community life from the political to the paranormal. Oh, wow. I, that's more than I had suspected. But, of course, I didn't really know what it meant. But that's fascinating. I mean, what an interesting, what an interesting job. I didn't even it know such a thing existed. It is fascinating. It's very interesting. It means I'm full of stories that I can't tell because all the people are still alive. But uh, maybe when I'm older. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Well, that's, and I'll be ready to listen when you're ready to talk. <laughs> Thanks, Jerry. Um, so, with that background, that that you know, you obviously were well equipped with knowledge about the church, the Bible. I mean, all of these elements, and you started seeing that there were things that didn't quite match up. Um, a friend of ours who's now passed away, his name was Kevin Smith. He was a pastor, um, and he stopped because there are too many things that didn't make sense, and he was getting in trouble with his superiors because he was asking questions that they didn't want anyone to ask. Is, yes. is that something that happened for you as well? <laughs> Well, I was really very fortunate in the timing of things in my life, really, because when the moment came that I thought, I am going to face these anomalies square on, I'm going to drill down into these anomalies in the text, and whatever I find, that's what I find. I was fortunate to be able to do that in between pastoral assignments, because what your friend experienced is the experience of many. I hear from pastors every week who are in exactly that situation. Either they've had experiences that they just can't share in their church community, or they know things about the history of the Bible, or they've find, found evidence of things in the Bible that just take them off the curriculum. And there are lots of churches that gather on the basis of doctrine. So who goes to that church will be defined by a doctrinal basis. You know, everyone here believes these 12 fundamental truths, that, that kind of thing. Right. And what that means is you've got at least 12 boundaries that you're not allowed to cross if you're going to be okay and be able to keep your position as a pastor. Hmm. Um, and so I speak to pastors who are in that situation and sometimes it's because they've had 
close encounter experiences or the members of their churches are having close encounter or contact experiences. But sometimes it's because they're simply reading the Bible and saying, hey, wait a minute, that text doesn't say <laughs> what we've always said it says. There's something else going on in there. And it may have to do with something paranormal, uh, something to do with uh, extraterrestrial contact. And they just know it's a taboo. They can't go there. I have uh, a friend who is a, uh, a senior pastor in, in a major church network in the USA who has continual contact experiences that he just knows he can't talk about in his mm. congregation. And yet he can find other senior pastors who are having the same experiences and interpreting it the same way he is. So it's not just the poor congregations who aren't allowed to speak. It's actually those in senior positions as well who find it very difficult to negotiate how open they should be because on the one hand, they want to be open. They want to be able to speak the truth of their lives and they want the members of the churches to do the same. But if you cross one of those shibboleths, go across one of those boundaries, that could be the end of your teaching relationship with that whole community of people. And then what purpose has that served? So a lot of pastors have to dance that kind of dance, and it's not, uh, it's not easy. No, I suspect not, given you know some of the intensities that I've heard from others about their experiences. You know, and then uh, oh, for sure, and the, the pastors probably need somebody to talk to, and they don't know who to talk to. They're supposed to be the end result with people come to them to talk to them. Yes, a lot of my coaching clients are in exactly that situation where where they are where the buck stops, and they have no one to go to with their questions or their experiences. And so, a lot of people will find me on my website and think. I can talk to Paul because from what he's shared, uh, I don't think he's going to judge me for what I'm about to say. And it's mm -hmm. a great privilege for me to be having conversations like that. And then out just to take it entirely outside of the, the church context, because the taboo around contact experiences is so strong in the wider culture. Often I have people come to me who are in their 60s and 70s and they will share an experience they had when they were 15 years old. And they will say, other than my spouse and the person I was with when this happened, I haven't told another living, breathing soul this story in the 50 years since. So that's the power of taboo in the general community. Oh, sure. Yeah, the same thing happened for me. Uh, you know, I told you. Uh, I told you a little bit of the story about this place called the Lighthouse when I was, you know, just a youngster. Uh, start talking about UFOs. Oh, no, those are demons. And it's like, no, they're not yes. demons. They're people. I've been talking to them. <laughs> oh, no, demons. Yeah. So I just had to be quiet about it. There really wasn't anyone to talk about at that time. And now there's plenty of people. But huh, yes. what an amazing Well, there are still thing. a lot of... Um, Christian believers who will give you an answer like that because the worldview that they have been taught has no box for demons. The whole cosmos has to fit into animal, vegetable, mineral, angels, demons, God, the devil, human beings, and there is nothing else. So if you have an anomalous experience that uh, threatens the Christian believer because they can't process it, they'll say, ah, that must be demonic. I'm feeling yeah. uncomfortable with this story, so it must be demonic. And that was true for me as well. I had five strange experiences when I was 20 years old that I didn't know how to process. But the only boxes I could tick were the ones I mentioned. So the nice experiences, I had to say, well, those were angelic. And the frightening experiences, I had to say, well, those are demonic. And it took me decades to unravel that and go back and realize, no, actually, the more I've learned about angels from the scriptures or demons from the scriptures, my experiences were something else. And it's taken me decades to reach the point 
where I could say I believe I had a close encounter of the fifth kind. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so what was your aha and moment? A lot, of people, a lot of people are in that situation where they have anomalous experiences they don't know how to explain, and they're not allowed the language to even speak the experience. Well, they might not even know the language. You no, know, true. You know, they have no way of really expressing what, what their experiences were. I know I didn't. Um, and I've met other people that, you know, this. I don't know what it was. Well, how do you explain it? Well, I don't have words for it. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's this, you know, what an amazing thing. So, you must have had one of those moments where a light went off and things started falling in place for you. Is that right? Yes. Yes, there was. There was a light bulb moment in a period of study. This was the period I mentioned before where I was between assignments. And in my book, uh, Escaping from Eden, I ascribe it to an ultimate Frisbee injury. And I'm, I'm laid up in my shipping crate cabin recovering from my ultimate Frisbee injury and doing some study, taking the opportunity. Uh, I really did have an ultimate Frisbee injury, but I kind of use that as a code for all the time that the universe has gifted me with to explore these questions. And I took the opportunity a few years ago to go back to the Bible, back to some of these stories that don't quite make sense, with a particular question in mind. And my question was, are there aliens in the Bible? Just to put it that boldly. And the reason that was a question in my mind was, uh, well, two reasons, really. One, it was a question that had been sown in my mind when I was 11 years old, when I read Chariots of the Gods by Eric von Daniken. Mm-hmm. And so the question of, is this a populated universe? Are we part of a wider cosmic family? Was lurking in the back of my mind all that time. And from time to time, I'd hear of others' encounters or spot things in the Bible, and it would just remind me, this is an unresolved question. And then in 2009, I was blown away when Pope Benedict XVI the most conservative pope in my lifetime, that's for sure, called upon the Pontifical Academy of Sciences to convene a colloquium. So that's a a symposium, a seminar of top top academics, top theologians, to discuss, and they made it completely public what this was about, to discuss the theological implications of contact with other civilizations. Wow. So that caught my attention. And then in preparation for that, some top Vatican spokespeople started briefing the press and following the colloquium, they went on TV shows, interviewed by magazines, and we heard from people like uh, Father Jose Gabriel Funes, who's the director of the Vatican Observatory, uh, Reverend Dr. Guy Consolmagno, who is the senior astronomer at the Vatican Observatory, Monsignor Corrado Balducci, who was a Pope's senior advisor in paranormal ministry, so entity removal. And they fronted the press and they started saying, we should not be at all surprised to have contact with other civilizations. And we should be ready to embrace our neighbors as a brother or sister alien. And we shouldn't be surprised to encounter them because they're in the Bible. They're in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, you could have... um, knocked me down with a stick when I heard this from those authorities, because it was only 400 years ago, the same institution was burning people alive for merely suggesting there might be life on other planets. So I thought something's changed. And in fact, the whole exercise gave the impression that the Roman Catholic Church was preparing itself in case there was a disclosure from some other authority. Uh, because of launching a new telescope or because of Chinese or Indian missions on the moon. They wanted to prepare themselves so that if somebody else announced we're in contact, they could say, oh, don't you remember we already mentioned this and there's no theological issue here. So that got my attention. I thought, what do they know? And is Guy Consolmagno right that there are aliens in the Bible, Old and New Testament alike? So I wanted to test that. I wanted to go back and look for myself 
And I suspected I might find an E.T. or two here or there in stories that I'd noticed. But when I actually used the tools I mentioned before of source analysis and going to the root meanings of the key words, particularly in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew scriptures, I discovered to my surprise that paleocontact begins in the very first sentence of the Bible and continues until the very end of it. And that when translated according to root meanings, the whole thing is a story of paleocontact and the implications that arise from it, implications to do with geopolitics and implications to do with human potential. The entire Bible. Yes, from start to finish. You can't escape it. Well, you know, I've always felt that way. But I thought that I was alone in my belief, or at least in a very, very limited group of people. <clears throat> I, I kind of drew those conclusions, you know, on my own. But, you know, as you were saying a moment ago, who do you talk to about this? As it turned exactly. out, Kevin Smith was somebody I could talk to because he drew those conclusions, too. Um, wow. So give well, us... a lot of people say what you just said. That they thought they were the only one who saw mm -hmm. it this way because of the, the power of this taboo. You know, most people think the Bible is all about God. And by God, they mean the source of the cosmos and everything in it that in which we all live and move and have our being, to use the Apostle Paul's words, of whom we're all offspring, to use his words. That's the vision of God that people have. That's what they think God means. And they think the Bible is teaching that. But if I were to tell you that the Bible doesn't even have a word for that, you'd probably raise an eyebrow. And then if I tell you the words most commonly translated as God mean something else entirely, well, that might whet your appetite for... Uh, my Eden series books, because that's where I go. And I go to words that have been translated as God that really should never have been. Okay, I'm curious. What words? Well, the first word that I really spent time with was the word Elohim. And it's the Bible's oldest word that gets translated as God. But a lot of Bible scholars are open about the fact there's something very odd about the word because it's a plural. It's a masculine plural form. And if you go to the root meanings, it means the powerful ones. So in my book, Escaping from Eden, I asked the question, what would happen if we retold the Elohim stories using that root translation and put the powerful ones into the text wherever you see Elohim? Well, of course, the stories change, but they don't change in a random way. They immediately flip and line up in parallel with what scholars believe are the source narratives from Mesopotamia, the cultures of ancient Sumeria, Babylonia, Arcadia, and Assyria. Story by story, as you go particularly through the book of Genesis, you'll be reading summary forms of the Sumerian stories. And the Bible stories of the Elohim, the powerful ones, are summary forms of the Sumerian stories of the sky people. So wow. now you begin to uh, join the dots. And the sky people were advanced beings who came to planet Earth at a time uh, when there'd been a catastrophe. The planet needed rehabilitating, and they re-nurtured life on Earth and they did genetic engineering on our ancestors to raise the intelligence of our ancestors to a point where we were a useful working class for them. So as I began rereading that in the Sumerian texts, I began recognizing the correlations not only in the Bible, but in ancestral narratives all around the world. So that just flows from that one word, Elohim. There's another mm. word, El Shaddai, which doesn't mean the Almighty, which is an invented translation that many Bibles have used. It means the powerful one, the destroyer. And then you oh. look at what El Shaddai does, and he's constantly doing things to prove he's worthy of that name. There's El Elyon, which means the powerful one higher than the other powerful ones. And you'll reach moments in the Bible where El Elyon gives lands and people out to other powerful ones. And one of those powerful ones is Yahweh. So mm -hmm. 
So this is a great shock to uh, many Christian and Jewish believers who know that name Yahweh as the holy name for God, that very elevated concept of God we mentioned before. But now he's a junior player among many Elohim where he's getting his allowance from El Elyon. It's a totally different story to the one that we've told in our religious circles. And yet it's the same story as the Sumerian, Babylonian, Arcadian, Assyrian. And it finds its echoes in Greek, Norse, Celtic, African, Mesoamerican narratives, indigenous story from all around the world. And it was the correlations that caught my attention, that I was thinking, well, this isn't just a random change. These stories actually finesse and confirm one another. And so you go back and read the Hebrew scriptures through a different lens. I guess. I'm just, my mind is blown. This is something I've always suspected, but I had no access to this knowledge. (laughs) That's just amazing. Thank you for that. So, in your first book, and the name of it again? Escaping from Eden. Escaping from Eden. In your first book, you're going into this, is that right? Yes, so Escaping from Eden really traces my own journey from uh, the safety of uh, the Christian mainstream and uh, my safe world of Christian ministry, and I follow these translation questions and these source questions uh, down the rabbit hole that I've just described, and I reach the conclusion not only that the the Bible is full of paleocontact, but that it tells a story that echoes all around the world. And that was a bit of a paradigm shift for me in itself, because as a young believer, I'd always believed that the Bible was the truth and everything else was therefore wrong. And it was the Bible over and against the world. Now I realize that our Hebrew ancestors tell a very similar story to our Andean ancestors and our Nordic ancestors and our Indian ancestors, and that there is a reservoir of knowledge which somehow never quite makes it into our textbooks. That's really a story of empire, but has survived at the folkloric level so that you can go anywhere on the planet, and if you're willing to listen to the shamanic leaders and the traditional healers and the indigenous peoples, you will hear these stories of contact repeat. Well, and I have. Kathy and I spent, over the course of the past 25, 26 years, we've spent a lot of time in South America. um, And we have several shaman there that we know quite well. They um, have told us stories. And then people deep in the Andes, you know, they, they have similar things to say. Um, so, wow, it's just amazing. So the second book, Echoes of Eden, is this picking up where you left off from the first one? Well, Echoes is the uh, the third in the series, actually. And in Echoes, what I do is I I start off from what we were just talking about, the fact that there is this information that has survived among indigenous peoples all around the world. And so I go back and sit at the feet of the elders of some of these traditions, and I find that the stories that talk about paleocontact, that have this different story of human origins, all there's an implication that arises from all these stories, and that is that you and I have far greater potential than we generally tap. Many of the stories say that our ancestors were smarter than us in the sense that they were better at accessing higher cognitive abilities. So they were better at remote viewing. They were better at future viewing. They had better telepathic connection. They were better self-healers and healers of others. And the story goes, this is just a thumbnail sketch of many, many stories, that in the past we were visited and adapted by our visitors, upgraded for higher intelligence, higher consciousness. But then they upgraded us to a point where we were too too smart and we were difficult for them to manage. 
And I think one of the most honest tellings of this story is in the Mayan version of it, which you can read in the Popol Vuh, the people's book from out of Guatemala. And in the Popol Vuh, it says that the engineers produced us plus, so us plus, better precognition, self-heating, remote viewing. And when they realized they'd created a being too smart for them to manage, they have an emergency meeting. They go to their chief genetic engineer, whose name is Kukumats or Kukulkan or Quetzalcoatl, according to which iteration of the story you're reading. And they say, can you dumb these down? Because how can you herd and manipulate a species that knows what you're thinking? We, we don't want them to smart. So they have an emergency meeting. Kukulkan comes up with a solution and he says, well, if we spray this vapor over human populations, it will brain damage them to the point where they can no longer access the higher powers. They'll just be restricted to their five physical senses. They'll only be aware of what's right in front of them. And for anything else, they'll need an authority to tell them what's what. We think we can work with that. So that's what they do. And very similar story is told by the Epic people in Nigeria where they have their emergency meeting because humanity has become too powerful. So they release devices into the environment that will make us physically ill or mentally ill because then we can be managed. The take home, I mean, those are horrible stories, really. I mean, who would make up a story like that? It doesn't elevate us and it doesn't elevate our makers, but this story repeats around the world. But the take home is that absent of toxins in the environment, you and I are able to access our higher powers. We are capable of so much more. And shamanic traditions all around the world who've curated those stories have also curated modalities for switching our higher functionality back on. And that's mm -hmm. the journey I explore in Echoes of Eden. I trace the survival of that information, the survival of these ceremonies, the survival of initiation traditions, despite thousands of years' worth of effort on the part of the empires of the day to dumb us down and to keep us manageable. And it's that tension and how do we live in that tension that I explore in Echoes of Eden. Wow. <clears throat> so are you talking about uh, this is what I'm thinking, so I'm just curious. Are, are you talking about things like ayahuasca, uh, mushrooms, you know, in other words, hallucinogenic substances as they're classified right now? But in the shamanic tradition, these are medicines that they use to bring a person's awareness to a much higher state, and uh, they're, they're focused to a point where you know they can do things that normally they couldn't. Yes, every shamanic tradition that I've explored so far has something like that within their repertoire. Uh, it's not the only thing, but there will always be medicines, foods, brews, psycho-effective things for you to ingest mm -hmm. that will either support your healing or enable you to have a contact experience or a near-death experience. And it sounds to many people like crazy, woo-woo, new-agey. And what they don't know is that it, that is at the roots of many of the world's great wisdom traditions. And a person I keep coming back to for myself is Plato. Plato is regarded almost universally as one of the great thinkers of human history. There's a British philosopher who once said that the entire Western tradition of philosophy could be regarded as no more than a series of footnotes to Plato. That's how important he is. And nobody disagreed with him. That's how important Plato is. Mm -hmm. And you have to study him if you're going to do theology or do philosophy. You can't do it without Plato. And what Plato did was to brilliantly synthesize the wisdom of the ages, international science and information, of his day, two and a half thousand years ago, and then, having synthesized it, argue for it in a very rational, logical way. So he has three sources of information. And one is what we would call science, logic applied to things we can observe repeatedly. And another is ancestral narratives. And he talks about getting information from a previous civilization 
which he identifies as the Atlantean civilization. That information, he said, came to the ancient priesthood of Egypt. And then a real historical Greek legislator, Solon, wrote down what he learned from that priesthood. And then Plato learned it because and a uh, descendant of Solon was in a classroom with Plato, and Plato wrote it all down. So that's his other source, ancestral knowledge. And then the other source was Kukion ceremony. And if people haven't heard of Kukion, it's similar to an ayahuasca ceremony. It's a near-death ceremony uh, invoked through a um, psychoaffective tea with the intention of creating an altered state of consciousness whereby you can perceive things in other dimensions you wouldn't usually perceive and have communication with entities in those other dimensions. And Plato claimed that experience for Socrates and by inference for himself. So when I studied Plato at Theological College and was quoting him in my essays, I actually didn't know he'd got a lot of these experiences uh, his sorry, a lot of his information from experiences of contact, a lot of his information from being a contactee. And Plato's just one of many who would quite openly make that claim. Wow. So I suppose we jumped over your second book then. What's the name of your second book? The Scars of Eden. Ah, here we are. So, so the Scars of Eden asked the question, has humanity confused ideas of God with memories of E.T. contact? And it really asked the question, so what? What difference does it make if we were the random result of evolution or if we're the intelligent creation of a God or if we're part of a populated universe and we've had interaction with cosmic neighbors and cosmic cousins? What difference does it make? And in The Scars of Eden, I show what difference it has made to our psychology as a species and what difference it's made to our geopolitical fortunes. And I, I, those are the dots I join in The Scars of Eden. Fascinating. The, um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm just running all this through my mind. This is some absolutely staggering material. I mean, it, it's... it's it's just a step beyond what a lot of people ever talk about or even know about. Um, so in the last one, then, the Eden Conspiracy, right? Tell us about that That's one. right. Well, in the Eden Conspiracy, I go back and I ask the question, all right, so there's paleo contact in the Bible. That's interesting. So was the Bible about paleocontact, or was it about something else? If it's not the book about God that we think it is, what was it actually about? What was it our ancestors wanted us to know when they wrote these stories? And so the, uh, the tagline of the Eden Conspiracy is memories of E.T. contact and the Bible before God, because the Bible was a book about something else before it became a book about God. And in it, I find a rich education in emotional intelligence, social progress. We learn about patterns of covert government, hidden hands in the world of politics, the ET layer in the world's geopolitics. And we realize that our ancestors are actually trying to equip us to live in quite a confusing, messy world that we don't have as much control over as we might like to think living in countries we call democracies. How do we do that? How do we find our strength? How do we find our power? How do we thrive in that world? Our ancestors wanted us to have a better human experience than they did, but all their lessons are airbrushed out when we translate those stories as God's stories. All the lessons about covert government and hidden hands in politics vanish the moment you translate those earlier words we mentioned as God. As soon as you read it through the lens of paleo contact, all these amazing lessons emerge to equip us for the present day. Well, give us an example of that. I'm really curious. So this, this is fascinating stuff. 
Well, there's a moment in uh, the Bible that would be very puzzling to someone reading it as a God story, and it comes in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 8. In that chapter, it's a, it's a Yahweh story. So as I said earlier, many believers, they, they regard that as the holy name of God, not realizing that it's been pasted over other stories about other entities. So you get to 1 Samuel 8, and the people of the tribes of Israel confront Yahweh, and they say, we don't want you governing over us anymore. Your administration is corrupt, and we don't want a new administration from you, thank you very much. Goodbye. One of our own is going to rule us now, and we're going to go over to human governance for human beings. Now, if that's a story of God, it's absurd. Yeah, Why would you think a, a human king would give you better advantage than Almighty God? You can't sack Almighty God. (laughs) <laughs> so it's one of those stories that ought to clue you that this is actually a story about something else. So by the time you get to 1 Samuel 8, reading the whole thing through the lens of paleocontact, you realize Yahweh is a non-human entity, a physical entity, among many physical entities. They all have their own human colonies that they're governing, and Yahweh has his. But Yahweh is <clears throat> at the more controlling end of uh, the story of colonization, and the people don't like it. But the Bible's very open about that. You go to Second Kings, the book of Jeremiah, and those writers will tell you openly, the people deplored Yahweh. They rejected his laws. They spoke slightingly of him. They disrespected him, but they remembered other powerful ones with affection. So that's a background to 1 Samuel 8, when they say, we don't want you governing us anymore. Goodbye, we're going to have a human king. And so they then have King Saul. Now, when you read it that way, you realize that the story arc is the same as dragon stories all around the world, because cultures all around the world have stories of non-human entities that they call dragons, governing over our ancestors, requiring the humans to serve them and keep them supplied with beef, lamb, virgin girls, and a lot of gold. All the things that Yahweh likes and all the things that he demands from his people And that's always the tribute that he's given when they go and raid other people's territories. So that's what the people have been doing for a while. And then they say, no, they realize that if we come together and speak with one voice, the dragon loses its power. This is the shape of the dragon story. The people come together and they say, we will not serve you any longer because they've realized, what can he do? Can't kill us all. Otherwise, he'd have no servants. Might kill a few of us. But they've reached the point where the terror has been used so many times, it's lost its power to terrorize. And people have reached the point of saying, well, what can he do? He can only kill us. And once you reach that kind of point, you find a kind of collective courage. And then they face the dragon down. The dragon realizes, I can't govern these people. They're not scared of me anymore. And so he slinks off to the mountains where he eeks out a life in solitude. That's the classic dragon story that you can find in virtually every culture, and there it is in 1 Samuel 8. The people have done that to their draconian overlord and said goodbye, except there's a PS to it. And the PS is that the dragon appoints his own successor and then appoints that successor and then expects to control foreign policy and then expects tribute to still come his way. And if public policy departs too far from what Yahweh would want, there'll be consequences, and he'll pull things back to where he wants. So suddenly we're reading a story about the persistence of old powers, how difficult it is to get rid of a dragon. I could tell you a story of the history of crown power in Britain, 800 years of democratization, And yet when you realize that you can't have a prime minister who hasn't sworn uh, fealty to the senior member of the Windsor family, you wonder how much things have changed. But he has to report to the Crown on a weekly basis about their political activity, where you're not allowed to be a parliamentarian until you've sworn fealty to the Crown. You realize not much has changed. And in The Eden Conspiracy, I go into that in detail showing that the persistence of old powers is something to be wondered at. That whole story is there in the Bible when you read it through the lens of colonization, paleocontact. 
read it as God's story, all that lesson and information disappears, but you're left with a puzzle. Why is God so vicious? Why does he kill his own kings when they start thinking for themselves? Why was he sacked by his own people? Why did they deplore him? Why did all the other priesthoods have to be slaughtered so that there would only be the priesthood of Yahweh left? These are all puzzles if you read them as God's stories. As soon as you realize these are stories of ancient colonization, that's when the light bulb comes on. Wow. You're right. That's that's just intense. That's really intense. So that's that's just a couple of for instances. Yeah, I'm, your head's probably just exploded two or three times knowing all this. I uh, know mine's about ready to. Um, so <clears throat> that kind of brings a few thoughts to mind. I want to see what you think about this. For example, um, Sodom and Gomorrah, the pillar of salt. What was it? Saul's wife? Is that right? Uh, Pillar of Salt, I mean, that always sounded like an, ex an atomic blast or something equivalent to that. Um, and, and they have found, you know, uh, vitrification uh, from what looked like it must have been a nuclear explosion because there's high radioactivity. And this, I forgot where this was now, India perhaps. Um, ah, yes, that's right. That's been found in India. That's absolutely correct. And, I mean, that's an example of the El Shaddai character in the Bible who's introduced himself to Abraham. And in the opening meeting, he says, uh, walk before me, walk in front of me, and don't put a foot wrong. I am El Shaddai, the powerful one, the destroyer. And within, as you say, within a couple of chapters, he has nuked a couple of towns, Sodom and Gomorrah, just to make the point. And Lot's wife is the one who gets turned into Lot's the wife. pillar of salt. That's right. So right from the get-go, you've got this very shady relationship between Abraham, who's been promised power and wealth and progeny, which sounds great, but if he puts a foot wrong, well, he just saw what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. And that has been sewn into our God concept from that time to this, so that now you have believers all around the world who were just as terrified of God as Abraham was of El Shaddai, mm -hmm. which is which is terrible because it is it is terrorizing, is disempowering, is infantilizing. If you believe that the source of the cosmos is going to nuke you if you put a foot wrong and offend him, but that is the world we've created for ourselves through this tradition of wrong translation. Yeah, well, I mean, what some folks have said to me is, well, what kind of God is God? Uh, you have to fear God. I have to love God. God's kind and giving and blah, blah, blah. At the same time, don't step out of line because yeah. you'll be sent to hell. It's worse than that because you have to love that God. So you have to love the destroyer. You have to love his xenophobia. You have to love his intolerance. Well, how do you do that? You have to sublimate your own conscience. And if you're worshipping and loving a God who's xenophobic, then you have to elevate xenophobia. If you're loving and worshipping a God who's a violent colonizer, well, guess where your culture's headed. You're going to do violent yeah. colonization in the name of that God. And unfortunately, that uh, has a lot to say to Christian history through the centuries. Well, it makes me immediately think about what happened when people came over here, all full of religion, into the United States. And, of course, the Native Americans paid a heavy price for that. They did, because with every colonization the colonizing power wants full-spectrum dominance. Yeah. So that's not just a matter of controlling people's behavior. It's controlling what they think. Uh, and they wanted to delete and replace what was believed on the North American continent, replace it with Orthodox Christianity. And so that meant getting rid of the shamanic leaders of the indigenous peoples, and it meant illegalizing initiation ceremonies 
for 100 years between 1880 and 1980 to prevent the transmission of the old knowledge through initiation ceremony. And when you realize this was done in the United States of America with the collusion of the churches, in Canada with the collusion of the churches, and there's now a commission that's uncovering what that actually looked like. And it happened in Australia as well, same period, 1880 to 1980. You have to ask, well, at what level was that decision made if it's happening in three sovereign countries? And what were the powers frightened of if they were so determined to keep this policy going for 100 years to stamp out indigenous information? There must be something powerful in it. Well, they, they tried to stamp it out in South America as well, but it didn't work out very well <clears throat> because of you know, too much territory and too few people, I suppose. Well, also, there's, there is a real resilience to indigenous knowledge. When information is carried through oral tradition, through secret societies of traditional healers and shamanic leaders, it's very difficult to totally snuff it out. And what happened, for instance, in uh, Mesoamerica with the Mayan story is uh, when the Spanish went in, they attempted to delete and replace the Mayan story by incinerating all the libraries because Mayan culture was a written culture and by executing all the priests so that if any of the texts should survive, no one would know how to read them. And they were, they did everything they could to get rid of that narrative, other than sending some copies into the libraries of uh, the kings of Spain and, uh, and the Pope. 200 years later, though, along comes a Roman Catholic parish priest by the name of Francisco Jimenez of the Dominican tradition. And Dominicans have a love for learning and francisco was of that tradition so when he went to his parish at chichicastenango in the high country of guatemala he wanted to learn from the locals and he loved the locals he was absolutely sincere as a pastor he was a scholar and when the locals recognized this about him they came along to him quietly and announced we are the descendants of the priesthood of the feathered serpent, which your ancestors thought they had extinguished. And we have kept a copy of our ancient text, the Quiche text. Would you be interested in our story of origins? And he said, oh, yes, I would. And he spent seven years translating it into Spanish, and it became the Popol Vuh, a book with a totally different story of human origins and human potential. And so that's an example of a really fierce attempt at suppressing the old story, and yet it survived. And I like the fact that it was actually a Roman Catholic priest who recovered it after all the Catholic efforts to destroy it a couple of centuries before. And mm -hmm. stories like that repeat all around the world. The old information never goes away. It always survives to resurface another day. Yeah, I believe that. So in your in your research, have you have you discovered that there are books left out of the Bible? Well, people talk about books, uh, books that were taken out of the Bible. But what you said, Jerry, is much more the case books left out. Mm -hmm. So that at the beginning of Christianity, there was a kaleidoscope of literature reflecting a spectrum of experiences, ideas, theologies, and there was a process of orthodoxization where certain texts became accepted, became the canon, and then others were just left to one side. And that was not necessarily a, a problem until that orthodoxy became required in the empire because it reached a point where Christian orthodoxy was ad adopted by the empire as the imperial department of religion, to the extent that if you didn't support it, then don't expect promotion. And once it reached that point, and really we're looking at the 300s, around 381, an emperor called Theodosius weighed into a theological debate in the church and decided he would settle it. 
And the moment he did that, what he was doing was militarizing that orthodoxy and anchoring the church to the apparatus of control that the empire had. So he's now at the top, God's underneath him, and then the bishops are underneath them at the same level as the senators, and the people's job is just to pray, pay, and obey. All the other texts, therefore, become a threat to that orthodoxy. And this was realized and understood to such an extent that those communities that loved and looked after those other texts literally buried them in the desert to prevent their destruction. Buried them in the caves of the Nag Hammadi so that future generations after the days of the Roman Empire would be able to dig them up and realize, oh, there's some other information here. And that, of course, is exactly what happened. They had to wait till the 1940s to be dug up and for believers around the world to say, oh, there's a bigger story that the Jesus story was part of. Yeah, and that, you know, the Jesus story is something that's always been, there's an element there that doesn't feel like it's real. It, It almost feels contrived. What is your take on this? Well, I think that uh, um, the writers who produced the Gospels and New Testament were a lot smarter than we've often given them credit for. I think not just at the fundamentalist end of the spectrum, but right across the spectrum of Christianity, the notion has been these were simple men who were basically taking dictation from God when they wrote these books. But study them in any detail, and you realize, no, they're very carefully crafted and written, and there's evidence that the writers were quite educated, that they understood the world of international thought that Plato described. You get to the Apostle Paul, for instance, and there are 12 sayings of the Apostle Paul that would be very well known, even to people who are not very interested in religion, they'd recognize the quotes not knowing that they're actually Plato quotes, where Paul has just changed a word here or there. So you know straight away that Paul was a student of Plato, and then he quotes Greek poets, that definition of God that I mentioned earlier. uh, He lifts part of that from one of the Greek poets. And people who studied um, Egyptian wisdom, recognize references to it in the Gospels. People who studied Buddhist teachings recognize references to it, even in Paul. And so we have to place that literature in the world of international philosophy and understand that the writers knew exactly what they were doing as they put these documents together. So chances are there are many layers to those texts. And simply to take them as, if they were simple diary entries, is, I think, to read them in the wrong way. No, I, I kind of felt that as well. It, it's, it seemed to me like it was a combination of stories sometimes put together to make one cohesive story, and the cohesiveness was meant to inspire you to look this direction because that's where they want you to look. Uh, that's absolutely right. I mean, that's really what a gospel is. A gospel is a thesis... And then the evidence brought together to support the thesis. And so with the canonical Gospels, you could probably summarize the message in a couple of sentences, and then everything else in the Gospel supports that thesis. So what you said is is exactly right. Do you, do you suppose there was a Jesus? I think there was. The reason I think that is that the things he said even in the neatest and tidiest Gospels, the canonical ones, were so inconvenient to the powers of the day that there's no way you would invent that character. So there are people who who think he was invented to create a compliant people for the Roman Empire. When you read what he had to say about um, feudalism and taxation and money, Uh, That doesn't make any sense at all. They've created the most inconvenient figure possible for an empire that wants a manageable population under feudalism. Mm -hmm. And the way the Roman Empire managed the Jesus of the Gospels was really to ignore great chunks of his teaching. 
So it's the inconvenience of the figure of Jesus that convinces me there was a real Jesus and he gave real teachings and then people had to come to terms with it one way or another. They're either going to be zealous all out for him or they're going to try and hijack the story, hide it with fucked up translations and then redirect people's attention to transform what Jesus was actually on about, which was really about grassroots empowerment and the exploration of cosmic possibilities, transform that into a religion of worship, obedience, and compliance to the authorities. The fact they had to distort the story convinces me there's something real at the heart of it. That's a very good point, because I've I've been at odds with this for a very long time. And, you know, you probably have been exposed to some of the same things I have. I mean, the similarities between uh, the story of Buddha and what was the other one? Well, of course, Jesus. Was it Mithra? Something like that? The, the, the story. Oh, yes. Well, you've got the, the sort of resurrection idea in Mithras, and then you've got walking on water, multiplying food, shared by Jesus and Buddha, other interesting little correlations that all ought to make us want to put the Gospels in this much bigger context and then compare notes. Yeah, and it just seemed to me like they just took a whole selection of people, put it all together, and the church wanted there to be a Jesus. And so this is how they got their, um, you know, their poster child, let's say, out there in front. I don't know one way or the other, but it just seems, you know, like I said, sometimes it seems a bit contrived, but your view on this is actually yes. quite quite fascinating. Well, I think if Paul was a scholar of Plato and a scholar of the Greek poets, if Paul was a scholar at that level, and the early church fathers regarded him that way, it's interesting, they would often quote Paul and Plato alongside each other. And when they did that, they believed they were paying Paul a compliment. Uh, if Paul was that well-informed and that educated, is it credible that Jesus was less informed than that? You see what I mean? So I think mm. if you see interesting synthesis going on, it might not just be the, those who wrote for Jesus who had pulled international thought together. It's entirely possible that Jesus was that smart as well. And sure. my suspicion is that Jesus was not only a scholar in the Pauline sense, I believe he had traveled the world. The canonical Gospels tell us that he lived for a while in Egypt. I've become convinced he lived for a while in India as well, which is why there are some points of connection there. So I think he he's not simple carpenter that the church has made him out to be. And he doesn't teach the Gospel that the church has made it out to be. The church has turned the Gospel into a message of heaven and hell. You know, become an Orthodox compliant Christian, you're on the path to heaven. Outside of that, well, I'm very sorry, you're going somewhere else. That is nowhere to be found in the teachings of Jesus correctly translated. So, again, because they had to distort what Jesus was on about, that persuades me there's something real at the heart of it. Good point. Valid point. <clears throat> what do you think about reincarnation? Was that something left out of the Bible as well? Well, uh, funnily enough, it wasn't left out of the Bible. It's one of those cases where it's in the Bible, but not talked about. And believers oh. have just been sort of redirected. And it crops up in the Gospels, the canonical Gospels, no less, when Jesus asks his 12, who do people say I am? And apparently one of the most popular answers was, they think you're a reincarnation of one of the prophets. They think you're a reincarnation of Elijah. Some people who are confused about their timeline think he might be John the Baptist come back from the dead. So in that conversation, we realize that reincarnation was part of the conversation at that time. Not surprising, because Plato wrote about it half a millennium before, and there it is being discussed and considered by Jewish believers. So it's not that reincarnation was an idea outside of Judaism. These were Jewish answers to who they thought Jesus might be. And when you go to the uh, story about the, um, what do we call it, um, the story of the wise men, the Magi coming from the East right. to honor this baby, 
who did they think he was? Uh, sit with that story long enough and you will come to the possibility they thought he was a reincarnation of someone else as well, knowing from the get-go that he would be a great teacher uh, of humankind. So it's there in the Gospels referred to, it's there in Plato and many of the early church fathers thought Plato was the bee's knees and so you go to teachers like Clement of Alexandria and Origen and they put forward the idea of reincarnation. They don't teach it as dogma. They just say, you know, this might be the case. Maybe we'll come back around another time on planet Earth. Maybe we'll have a totally different experience in another dimension or on another planet. Uh -huh. But the expiry of our physical bodies isn't, isn't the end of the story. And it wasn't this heaven and hell story for them either. It was, we'll go on to something else. So reincarnation is there in the Bible, and it's there in primitive Christianity, but it then falls off the syllabus because it's far easier to manipulate and control people if you've got the carrot of heaven and the stick of hell to wave in front of them. Well, it's easier to manipulate people, control them, if you have that. You know, let them know that there's a pretty good chance that if you go... Well, you just come back, and uh, mm, interesting, interesting, interesting. And you know this thing about the Magi. Uh, whenever uh, was it the? Um, oh, now in my mind, I can't think of the name of it. But it's the fellow who's in um, Tibet. Um, the Dalai Lama. That's it, Dalai Lama. When he dies, they go out searching for him to be reincarnated. The, that's right. So That's right, the new great lama. It just suddenly occurred to me. The, <laughs> they're coming from the east, the three wise men. They're looking for the next, you know, holy man. That's how I read it. I mean, that's where they're coming from. And we can see they're honoring Jesus in that way, so it does fit within the structure of Eastern thought. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a comment. Subscriptions and your comments cost nothing, but it really helps us out a lot. To hear the entire interview you were just listening to and many, many other amazing interviews within our archives, please visit jerrywillshow.com and become a member. Your membership supports our ongoing broadcasts. That's jerrywillsshow.com. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this program.